Hello and welcome to Three Worlds podcast number six. This one's going to come out fairly quickly on the heels of number five. Um, what I'm doing on this one is uh, back in uh, 1988, Sunbear came to Gloucester, a little town not that far away from where I was living in England at the time, and uh, he gave a talk. And this is a recording of the first part of that talk. It was recorded in May in 1988, so uh, it's 18 years old, thereabouts, 18 and a bit. Um, sound quality isn't amazing. I'm hoping that everybody will be able to hear it all right. Uh, it was recorded on just a little cassette dictation machine, so please forgive the uh, the, the kind of crudeness of it. But uh, I've given it a listen to, and I think I can pretty much hear it, so I'm hoping that other people will as well. So uh, I hope you enjoy this. And uh, I've got a load more sort of talks and things from different people, so I'll slip those into other pods at different times. To uh, remind you again of the contact details, you can email me nick at sacredhoop.org. You can visit the uh, the website for the podcast, threeworlds.co.uk. Um, you can visit the Sacred Hoop website, www.sacredhoop.org. And you can visit my own website, which is nicholaswood.net. I hope you can understand this this talk okay, and the, the clarity of his voice is, uh, is good enough to listen to. And I hope you enjoy it. Okay, well, here we go. Sunbear in Gloucester in 1988. Well, it's very good to be here. It was very beautiful to ride out, and I saw that you're still some greenness left in the land. It's very encouraging. You know, you begin to wonder sometimes when you begin to see what's happening on the earth that uh, maybe we're down to where there's one lone tree left and it's put around it like in a zoo, you know, and announce it for future generations that this is a tree. I always am fearful of that. We might have gotten to that stage somewhere in the world. And so drive out here and see that there were green things growing and everything and coming out and also seeing that there's some birds flying around and everything and I just said thank you great spirit as we along the path because uh, there's still hope for us you know we still have have just maybe just a little bit of possibilities yet and it's uh, <clears throat> something to be very aware of though because uh, some places the uh, it's not quite like that anymore places in the United States where there are places that uh, uh, are have big signs up and the sign says do not enter, do not leave your car under any circumstances. This area is contaminated with dioxin and that's along a highway, a major freeway outside of uh, St. Louis and there once was a city there, 15,000 people, and they had evacuated the whole city. And for the next 25 or 50 or 100 years, it's no longer a place where people can live or be. And there are many places like that happening elsewhere. And they say there's a 100-mile-wide belt <coughs> in the Soviet Union and other places that's expanding every year, where the grass has turned yellow and nothing will grow on the land anymore. The land has been killed by chemicals. And you look at people who come to me from Czechoslovakia, and they 
showing pictures from their country. And it looks like uh, twice or maybe 20 times as bad as Los Angeles on a smoggy day. So we know that there are places in the world where the contamination is becoming very acute. I <clears throat> was on, I, we were watching the news this morning and the United States was uh, looking for a place to dump garbage. They were even checking out England if they would be interested in having it dumped over here. So, and that's for real, that was on the news. You know, we probably read about the garbage uh, boat that went all the way around the world trying to find a place that they wanted their garbage. Well, that's a becoming a growing, growing problem there. And uh, <coughs> it's really something that uh, people just just never bothered to take a look at. It's, it's something of the way that we have dealt with the world for a long time. We produce things that are not necessarily good for anything after we've used up what we have from them, then the rest is throwaway. And the throwaways, many of them are such that they are, people are not ready or willing to recycle them or take responsibility for them. And this is becoming a continuing sad thing. I remember 12 years back when I was in a park, a national park in the United States, and I heard this noise and I looked around and everything and I saw a poor skunk and he had his head stuck in a tin can. He stuck his head in there to eat out of this can and we caught him around the head and he was, he was locked in there. You know, and freeing and doing mercy uh, efforts for skunks isn't my idea I decided that he needed my help, so I, I very, uh, waited until I could get reach from behind a tree, and then I grabbed the can and gave a quick jerk, and it came off, and he, he jerked out the other way, and he was, uh, he was so happy to be free that he didn't stop even to announce his presence to me. So it was okay, but uh, it is something that you notice when you see these things happening. So many places, it's not uh, you know, it's not just the humans. You know, sometimes I look at it, and when the like out on the east coast of the United States, where they dump out you know thousands and thousands of tons of garbage into the ocean, they go out beyond a shelf there that you regard as being a shelf in the ocean, and they dump these big garbage chips. They just dump it in the ocean. You know, they've been doing it for years. And then one time there, they got to work winds blew in from the ocean for two months. The winds were blowing in from the ocean. And all this garbage was up on the New Jersey shore. Up on the New Jersey shore. It all come back to it. And every so often that happens, you know. And it's sort of a thing that you look and you say, yeah, yeah, you know. It's like the Earth Mother sometimes is just vomiting up all the things that we put into it. You know? And it, it's, a, it's a powerful thing because something is really happening and we, we're, we're going to have to look at that more closely because uh, the biggest problem 
of the world has been that we never looked at the end results of anything we did. And this is, has been true all over, and particularly the industrialized nations have to really take a look at that today. Because what we've done and the end result is, is not pretty. And it's, it's to now to where it's beginning to get to where it's coming back on us in a very strong way. Over in Deutschland, where I come from, we went through different parks over there. And they showed us, they had signs on different trees to show the stages of the dying of tea trees and why they were dying, how the pollution was causing it and everything. Acid rains and everything. In the United States, east coast of the United States in Pennsylvania, one particular species, birch trees. In the last three years, all the birch trees died out. And they died out because they were the least resistant to certain pollutions that were coming into the land here. And there's an old <clears throat> friend of mine, he's a, uh, he's a uh, Hindu, he's a Hindu uh, monk named Vasant. Some of you may know him, that's why I mention him. He goes around the world doing fire ceremonies to try to teach people uh, how to take a, a better balance in their life. And he gave me a gift of one of these, these uh, pyramids that he uses for doing his ceremonies in, and uh, shared with me because of the, that I'm, I'm traveling and I'm talking to so many different people and everything. And he said, tell them, he said, the things that I say also. Because they have, they have a, a prophecy among their people. And when the trees die, and the people start dying too, because the trees filter all of the poisons out of the air. And it's something to look at just what is happening with trees now, what is happening with them. Like many of you are aware of what's happening in Brazil, where a rainforest, a whole rainforest, is being destroyed. It's being cut down like thousands and thousands of acres of it. Now they're cutting it down also because Gold miners want to come in there and do a little, little uh, a bit of mining and other things. And they're just tearing down like 5,000 acres a day of uh, rainforest is being destroyed. They say that 40% of the oxygen in the world is produced there. And the research of scientists find that it takes one tree, <coughs> big, big tree produces enough oxygen provide for the needs of 12 people. And when that tree is cut down, it takes 2,500 little trees to replace it. That's something to think about. Look at what's happening. And it's something of it that is coming home to us because the population and the world is getting sicker all the time. We have more uh, illnesses coming on. In the United States, one out of three people has, uh, will have cancer in their lifetime. And that's in spite of all of the, the modern medicine and everything else that's coming on. 
and the other sicknesses that are happening. They're all being caused by humanity not being responsible to nature. The creation around us, it is not a one-way street. It's not a thing that we can take and take from and give back sometimes. And that's that's something that that we're feeling more and becoming more aware of all the time. When I started out on this path, my uncles, the old medicine people up in the north, they come to me one time sat down and lodged together and we prayed and they were praying with tears in their eyes they were really praying this old man and he said you have to do something he said you have to talk to these people they said because they said what is happening they said but we went to fish before we got fish for to feed ourselves and our families they said the fish are dead and the fish are so sick that we can't eat them anymore mercury poisoning and all the other sicknesses, the plumes that are put in the rivers where the fish are not edible. <laughs> that's what's happening. And it's happening up in, like up in Canada, there's places in, in Canada where the other live, uh, wildlife also is dying or has sicknesses because of it. And deer that are born and deformed and everything. And it's all because of the things that we nature and the creation around us. And it's something of it that it seems like the industrialized man, he looks at it and first he pollutes the cities, then he goes out and says, well, there's hardly any people living here at all, so it's okay, we'll dig up this uranium or we'll, we'll dig up this, we can just take it uh, and we can just put the pollution right into the air because there's not too many people here, just a few Indians around here. Worry about it. They aren't. They aren't any heavy political pressure, so we will just do it. And, and this has been going on for many years now. My daughter, <clears throat> some of you may have heard of her. Uh, the Indians call her Winona Van Duke. Duke. She's a very outspoken speaker on, on anti-nuclear things and women's issues. And she did a considerable amount of research as to what was happening. Indian reservations in the southwest, where they have had some 300 miners die. Indian miners have worked in mines of leukemia for mining uranium. And it's something that we don't look at these things. We don't look at the end result. The native people, whenever we add anything into our life path, we measure it measure, we make a measurement, we say, well, how does this affect our relationship to the Earth Mother? How does it affect our relationship to the Creator? How does it affect our relationship to each other? And how does it affect the lives of all generations to come? That's the way we look at it. It's something of it that, that I'm sharing with you these things because ecology and the sense of, of responsibility for the earth, that was what the beginning three meant mankind was. The keepers and protectors of the earth's mother and take responsibility and understand it. And they got away from it. 
lost it somehow. We lost the, the sense of identity of the saints. And it's a it's a thing of a to me ecology can't be a political word anymore, just it has to be something deeper than that. It has to be something of a spiritual thing. That's what it was and always has been for native people. It's something of the way that we live deal with the nature and creation around us. Before we go out on the hunt, we make a prayer, we do a ceremony. And when we're doing that prayer and that ceremony, we're praying about our, to our to the animal that we're going to hunt, whether it's the buffalo or the deer or what. And the prayer is, we take your life in order to continue our own at this time of prayer. And even as we take your life, at this time, the time will come when we'll give up our life and our body will go back to Lear's mother and from it will feed and bring forth new life. And it's something of it that, that, that when we go out to harvest herbs or plants or even from our garden, we have tobacco with us before we take it, before we make a before we harvest a plant, we make an offering. And like when we're harvesting herbs, for, like we need it for ceremony, like sage and things like that, we don't take from the first one we come to, but we thank the Creator that it exists. And then we make an offering, and then we go and we harvest from the next one. And that the species might continue, that life might continue. It's always a remembrance. It's a very important part of it. You don't clear cut anything. <coughs> it's something that a long time back, when the first Europeans come to the North American continent, and they come, they saw a beautiful, unspoiled wilderness from sea to shining sea, a land that was not contaminated. And they come there and they saw the natives like him in, in Massachusetts and Virginia, beginning places that would be in the settlements. And the native people were planting their corn. And when they planted their corn, they would take and, take and put a fish or part of a fish into the ground with the corn. And the people, they looked at him and they said, well, this must be some savage superstition. They said, hey, look at here, you know, this, this land is, is powerful and, and it has to, whatever he's doing, this is some savage ritual that this poor Indian is doing. And the native Indians, the native people, they said, you have to feed the ground. You can't take from it all the time, you have to give. And People that come, when they come across the water and they went into it, they used to have three, three farms in their lifetime. They plant crops, use the farm, burn off the timber, just like they do in, it was slash and burn across the whole United States. And they would burn the timber off and then they would take it, uh, use the farm for 20 years, 15 years, 
be all wore out in the soil and then they move on further westward. Up in the eastern part of the United States you see old stone fences up there where now there's trees growing up again because the land was so completely wore out they couldn't farm it anymore. Out on the west coast of the United States they used to take and bore holes in the bottom of these beautiful fir trees and pine trees and then when the sap would come down into the tree trunk come in and form into this pitch, the tree pitch. They'd set fire to it and make a torch out of a whole 75 foot tall tree to burn it down so they could get the land to raise crops on. And that was the way that it went. And this is why the native people had such an anger and such a frustration to see what was happening and why they fought back like they did. It cost the U.S. government eight federal soldiers for every Indian they killed across the United States. And that was their policy up until 1900. The only good Indian was a dead Indian as far as they were concerned. Same policy that is now in Brazil and in other parts of the world. It's a sad thing because the people who were trying to protect the land, they were the ones that were killed off for trying to do it. Now we look, and here and there a few people can need to wake up and say thank you, Great Spirit, for that. It's a sad thing because I have messengers come to me, very strong messengers sometimes. I'm going to share with you a little story about this because I want you to think about it. I had, uh, <clears throat> it used to be that I would go into Spokane, a town that's 35 miles from us in this land. There, whenever I get in there, I would go to the bookstore where I'd give in some lectures. And I'd use the phone there because otherwise, if I uh, called from out where we lived around the city, it was all long distance calls. So once I got into Spokane, I used my friend's phone in the bookstore and called. And I come in there and I hadn't been in there for three months' time. And I made three phone calls on the phone, picked up the phone call on the phone to make another call. And a voice, and I, I, there was no ring, I picked it up, there was no ring, and a voice on the other end of the phone said, Sun Bear, and I said, yes. He said, an eagle fell from the sky, and he's hurt, and I want to bring him to you. And I said, well, you know where I'm at, bring him to me. And this man come by, he'd been to one of my lectures some time back, and he just about to call me, and just at that exact minute there. And he brought me this beautiful bird that was alive still. I looked at its tail feathers and I saw it wasn't eagle but a red hawk. And I kept it with me in the car <coughs> for that during that day while I was doing the rest of my shopping. I tried, tried to feed it meat but didn't want any meat. I offered its water, took a little bit of water. And at the end of the day, and I had a sweater wrapped around it to keep it warm because it seemed like it was chilled. At the end of the day, it signaled that one wanted me to take that sweater off of its, off of its body. I pulled it away, and it fluttered twice in the car and died. And it told me something. It told me a message. The bird was, looked, looked like it was not going on over anymore. It told me it was dying because it had been poisoned poisoned by these pesticides. And that was what had happened to it. 
little one, all of a sudden it just dropped down, paralyzed. And it's something that's happening, it's happening all over the world. There's areas like in, in uh, Thailand, there, to where that there are no longer any fish, freshwater fish inside of the whole country that are edible because they've all been killed off by pollution. They have no restraint on the people there at all. They can just go and dump it in there and destroy things. Something, because we have to look at the belief system that's created the way that we look at the view of the world and the view of each other's human beings. People ask me sometimes, they say, what do you fear most in the world somewhere? I say, not the atomic bombs, I say. I don't fear the atomic bombs, I say. What I fear more than anything else is human conditioning. The belief system that has been put on to us to where we've been conditioned to believe and think a certain way. And it's been a lot of people have been doing a number on our heads for a long time. A belief system that causes us and allows us to destroy ecology is a belief system that is put into our minds that, the only, that we're all going to go to heaven so we don't need to worry about taking responsibility for the earth. This man that was in uh, the, was uh, Ronald Reagan's assistant, Secretary of Interior, uh, <clears throat> some time back, he, he made a statement one time. He said, well, he said, don't worry about the environment. He said, we're not, we shouldn't worry about it. He said, we're going to, he said, it is, we'll use up all the resources because he said, we're going to go to heaven. He said, only the bad people will be left here anyhow. That was his attitude about it. And it's been, it's a thing of it that, that like one old Indian once said, <coughs> he said, if the white man wants to go to heaven so badly, why don't he go? <laughs> I don't think the Creator, the great spirit of God, had that intention. I think it, you know, like the, the native people feel that the earth is a beautiful place and was created for us to be here, to live, and to grow, and to balance and harmony. But we've allowed ourselves to go into our conditioning the fact that this is not our home, and we're not really responsible. Whatever we want, and then we just disappear. We've been doing that all over the earth. You know, wear it out, go in, okay, okay, we're going to mine out all these resources here, and then when the last bit of resources is gone, it's goodbye, folks. We left and we're going back to wherever it is. And, uh, and that's been going on for a long time. People haven't taken responsibility. They don't acknowledge the planet as a whole planet or take responsibility. Native people speak of the earth as our mother. And when they use that term, they're speaking of not only the mother of human beings, but of all living creation. Whenever we go into the sweat lodge, we make a prayer for all of our relation. It's like plants, animals, insects, crawlers, everybody, you know, all of them have the same right to life on the planet as we do. Some people are, are aware of that. It's, 
that's good. You know, I was very, felt very good today. I turned on the television and I saw the different <coughs> speaking out, you know. Could have been me saying words, you know. I said, thank you, great spirit, you know. There's a man that did command a certain amount of respect, you know. He was actually saying some really strong things about him. I'm taking responsibility. And it's something of it that <coughs> it's something that, you know, you can look at the beauty of living creation around you. Say thank you, Great Spirit. It's so alive. That's that's good. That's good. The whole thing of, of life. Life is a gift, and all parts of creation appreciate the gift, especially you. Native people feel that that the first step of a person's healing. When we work with healing somebody most important steps of their healing is when they are able to reach out and give to something to somebody else. Some of the first beginnings that they're able to do, people that need, need to do that, is learning how to give to nature and the creation around them. Understand that that's, that's a living part of life there. <coughs> Up where I live in, in Spokane, Washington, because people have depleted the environment very much. Much of it is no longer there's anything there for the deer to eat in the winter time. So I have taken feeding the deer every winter. I feed them and make sure they survive when the snow gets deep and everything because I like to see them there. I just like to see them there. They're beautiful. And it's a thing that with native people, we've always had that sense of oneness with all creation. We think of we think of everything as being part of a circle on the earth. And all of us are children of the same mother, the earth mother, which is the creator made this this earth for us to live on, to be here and to share and keep our and we have a right to take for our needs have to destroy or deplete. And that's the way we feel like when people come to us, we, we're always, you know, hey, we're very generous, and open handed here. Come on. So you want to have a cup of coffee, have have something to eat, you know. I'm going to native families that have very little and yet they're always generous. There's hospitality is sacred to people. Always has been. But we think about we look around and we see, you know, like I see the needs of People need a place to sleep, they need something to eat and everything. But it's it's the imbalances of the waste of things that we create and everything. And I see it in many different places. And it's the sadness of that. And we have to come to a balance. We have to be to where if we take something away, we have to give something back. This year, I started a project again in my own, my own group where we are Starting trees, little little Christmas trees and little pots, so that instead of in this winter when it comes toward Christmas time, instead of people going down and getting one at the, a Christmas uh, <coughs> a tree lot which has been cut off and it's 
sitting there, you know, we want to sell them a tree that is, has life in it. And they can take it home and we're going to have them adopt a tree, you know. Maybe we can have it for two, three years even, you know, before they plant it out in their backyard or something. And teaching people to add to nature rather than to take away from them. And that's, that's what I tried to do with some of my tribesmen. They don't understand my approach because I come out and I talk to non-native people and I treat them like human beings, you know. And some of them are angry enough that they don't feel that that's any more part of what should be done, you know. And, but I, I feel that if I can reach out and communicate to people, make them think, and make them aware, then that's, thank you, Great Spirit. That's, that's what, what it's about. And it's something of it that this, the sickness that comes upon us, all of the sicknesses that we have are interrelated. In, our, our, in my work, one of the first things that I deal with is the sicknesses that start up in the head. I work a lot with healing. In the process of setting up, we have uh, three healing centers in Deutschland, Germany. We're trying to get one going down in, in Mexico. And we're working on, we have uh, some in the United States. And these are people that have studied with apprentices, they're doctors, or psychiatrists or chiropractors or people in many of the fields of life. And <coughs> we work with people there or start to work with them and healing people. And one of the things that I tell people is that 90% of the illnesses of humanity start out in the head. They start out with the anger, the fear, the jealousy, frustration. They start out up here and they go down into your body. Go down into like the first one place they attacked is right in the back of the neck, right down in here. <coughs> Many of you, you felt it there, right? You go on, you're on the job, you know. And some guy, he's got promoted when you should have gotten the job, you know. Or maybe it's somebody that whistles out of tune on the job, you know. And this guy, <coughs> Eventually, it becomes a pain in the neck to you, literally. <laughs> That's what it becomes. You get a pain in it. And, and you feel the anger charge in it. And then it goes into your body in other places. If it goes down in here, maybe it's the, uh, hey, you know, that guy looked at my girlfriend too long. Looked at, that girl looked at my boyfriend too long, you know, or something like that there. And it goes down and start, it gets down in the chest here first, you know. It's that anger thing, and hey, it's up here, and it gets down in here, and you're feeling up tight, and pretty soon you can't even eat, you're so tight, and the next thing it goes down into your stomach, and that's where it goes. Or if it gets into another place that it goes, it goes right down into your side here, this part of your body here, and it forms what we call energy blocks. Energy blocks, that's where it blocks energy from flowing through your body anymore. And that becomes a real sickness. That becomes a real sickness. That's cancer. But if you look at people, I look at people coming to me. People come to me for consultations, for healings that I can look at. And what I see is I can look at them and I can tell where they're going, what's going to be their sickness. They're going to come along and they're very, they're real rigid, you know, stiff. 
there's arthritis and rheumatism. Mm -hmm. And you look at the ones that have the, you look at the ones that have a lot of anger in them. They just blow off immediately. That's heart attacks coming. You can look at them. And now, <coughs> medical science is catching up with you. The United States are starting into, they're starting into look at, at young people and are being able to understand what kind of sicknesses they're getting. They're looking at it and they say that, you know, the school bully don't live long. You know? They find out that he, he gets problems. He don't, if he don't get into balance in there, or otherwise somebody shoots him or knocks the block off either way before he ends up in prison. But they're able to trace people that can tell, hey, <coughs> But this guy was back with like back there when he was little. And patterns that people break, they dig into and they hold on to it. <coughs> That's what happens. It's something that the sicknesses, like the native people, we talk about the different sicknesses that come to humanity and we go into the sweat lodge to heal people and work with them and pray with them. Sweat lodge is a very powerful thing. It's where we put rocks, hot rocks, and we heat it outside and we put them in a pit inside of a pit. And we have inside and we have a little lodge covered over completely. We go in there and we sit down on the earth and we just tell people that we're going into the womb of the mother to be reborn and cleansed again. We go in there, we pour water on these hot rocks, and steam comes up from the rocks, and that's a breath of life goes into our bodies and pretty soon all of the sickness starts pouring out of our bodies. And that's the way we heal. And the deep sicknesses that we try to heal in the sweat lodge are anger, fear, jealousy. Those are the big ones. Those are the ones that, that really, really eat into and then can cause, cause the sicknesses, the deep sicknesses of arthritis, rheumatism, all of them. You can trace all of them to that. And, and it's, it's very, like, in the United States now, <clears throat> they're beginning to find uh, the mental, emotional problems. They're finding the causes of how, how they start up and everything. And before cancer, when somebody develops cancer, the first thing the doctors that are really, really up on their medical practice, they say, person, they say, well, well, did you have an emotional crisis at the time that this was come on? Did you feel something? Were you, were you having some problem in your relationship or in your business or something? And that's what they started tracing it and finding out that that's it. And before you can heal that person, that's what you really have to get back. And they, they don't know quite how to do that yet. But they, you know, at least they, they're beginning to find out where they where the culprits are, and that's, that's encouraging. Because it's, it's something I would like, you know, like, like I, I get, I, I work with MDs from time to time. In fact, a lot of MDs send me their mothers and their wives and so forth, because, you know, they say, well, you know, go on over there and see, maybe he can do something. Yeah, I can. <laughs> and I get them, they come to me for, for treatment, for healing and help other medicine people also. And it's, a, it's something that, uh, Sometimes I go in, like I go in for checkup every year just to make sure that everything is still in place where it's supposed to be and happening and everything. And I get a kid, uh, I get kicked out of these guys you know, because they're, they're 
they're sitting there and they're still playing with the same old tools sometimes. And I ask him, I say, well, <clears throat> what do I have to do? And he says, well, you go over there and take the bottle in and pee in the bottle, he says, and then, and then I'm going to take some blood out and everything. I say, gee, I say, you guys are really primitive, I said. He said, I got people, you know, that can take and <clears throat> they look into my eyes and they can tell by looking in my eye where my sicknesses are, you know, where they, they put my arm up and they'll see what's going to do me good or not. There. I said, these guys, they, they, you know, they, they, got it, they got it down pretty good. Amazing thing is these things work. They work. And so we, we discuss it anyhow. But I did a program in Los Angeles with 45 psychiatrists. And these people come to me and we did weekend programming. Everything that I did and so forth, and they're busy taking notes and everything. And, and then the next week, I had four days free before I went on my next program. And they knew what I was going to be around Los Angeles for four days. So they said, Sunder, do you have any free time? Would you, would you be open to doing some consultations? And I said, yeah, Sure, why not? It's something that I do sometimes. And I, I limit my consultations to half an hour with anyone. Because I tell them, I say, you know, by that time, either I'm bored with your story or I haven't figured out something to do with you. And I, and I say, that's all the time I want to spend on anyway. And so that's where I work with them. And uh, <coughs> they come, they, they filled up my four days between them and their pet patients. And all of them, they had problems. Every psychiatrist that ever has come to me has had problems. They all need help. And the thing is that, you know, and, and they, someone come to me with tears in their eyes and they say, well, what can I do? What can I really do for this person? You know, they say, I can put a band-aid on an emotional band-aid, and I send them back in the same job, the same situation, made them crazy in the first place. That's the thing of it. And a lot of it is that you're taking people that are basically, you know, good human beings, sensitive human beings, and you're trying to force them to fit in and conform to a particular situation just because that's the way society is and that's the way you gotta do it. And so that's that's what happens. Pretty soon they blow their sprockets out again and they go end up in the funny farm and locked away because that's all that's the only ultimate thing you can do in this society. And it's sad. <coughs> well, native people we had ways of working with these things too. Like sometimes it's, it's interesting because these people come to me, and, and there's a lot of people come to me as a last resort. They have they go out, you know, the doctor says you got two weeks to live, you know, and they say, well, I tried everything else. I think I'll try this Indian medicine man character now because you know it's, it's all shot anyhow. And once in a while I get lucky, you know, I'm not. Sometimes I get lucky and I'm able to do something. I keep praying. I say, well, Creator, can't you send them to me while they still have both arms and legs on them? You've <laughs> got some, some possibility. And, uh, it's getting to where I get more, more response now. It's getting a little bit more of where I'm getting a little earlier sometimes. Creator, I think it's been good to me in sending me a little more help. But uh, we have a thing of it that believe in working with and healing the whole human being. That's what we work with. 
first thing I start out with is a head. <coughs> I don't start out with a sore toe. I start out with the head first. And what I do is I, I talk to the person and find out what their problem is. The Native people have been doing this for, I go around and I, I go around and I'm fisting with some other medicine man or medicine woman and I'm down there with the Mayans down in South America down in Tikal, that's a place in South America where they have some powerful temples. And <coughs> talking to this Mayan medicine man, I say, well, how do you do it? How do you do it with your people? He said, well, he said, we have them stand over a stream of flowing water. And they speak out over the stream of water, all the things that they feel badly about, that are bothering them in their life. And this water carries away from them, takes them away from them. And in Mexico, they build a statue. They build a paper mache statue. Uh, and they, they have the statue prior to the big fiesta the celebration. They have people come up and people put little notes on the statue. That's the end of Dr. Lewis. Now amongst the people of the south and the southwest, there's a tribe of Indians there. And the way that they look after their their emotional problems and mental problems is that they have a group of dancers and they call them they call them devil dancers because they're driving out the devils or the bad spirits. They call them the uh, they call them uh, the uh, spirit dancers, mountain spirit dancers, and crown dancers because they wear a big high crown. If you go down there, Apache reservations. You see, or if you get a chance reading a book, you'll see sometimes in some of the old books you see pictures of. And they dance through the village with swords, and they drive out any of the bad spirits that are get rid of them that way. And then afterwards, the man comes through and sweeps behind them with rooms made out of uh, cedar boughs to drive out anything, get rid of anything negative that's left behind. And that's the way they cleanse out their, their uh, area. Before, and then after that, they have a, a corn maiden, they call her, comes and sprinkles cornmeals of blessing. A blessing. Now, amongst my tribe, the Chippewa people, or Chippewa, and some of the Blackfeet people, and also amongst my own group, the Bear Tribe, we do it, and all my people I work with, we have a very strong way of getting rid of negativity. And what we do is we have our people in the spring of the year. This is a good time of the year to do it. And they go out on the land and they find a place where they can do it. They dig a hole in the ground. And they get down on their hands and knees. And they speak into that hole all the things that they feel bad about. The things that are bothering them. The things that they've been holding back. Sometimes people dam up their emotions. They have they have they gunny sack their emotions, they hold them back and everything. And so they get out there and they just talk it all into that hole in the ground. And then after that, they cover it over and they pray that it be transformed into what it is, fertilizer for the Earth Mother. And leave it there. Very important to leave it there. <coughs> pray over it so that you've completed it because it is your 
your stuff. You know, it's your stuff you're getting rid of, and it's your responsibility to, to keep it, to keep yourself. And when you emptied everything out, then you have space up here in your head for the Creator to put some new knowledge in there. You know, then you can start taking some pretty good things. But you have to get rid of it first. You know, it's a real thing of, of emptying out, and freeing yourself, and then you're ready for other kinds of healing. You can start in healing because you've opened up and freed yourself.